0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Yeah, so mm.
1: we presented on the same day.
0: Yeah, fantastic.
1: Yeah.
0: Ah, great. Well, I guess that is a great way to start this one, which is that yeah. we've, we've got a cracking conversation, different
1: to normal.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a cracking conversation um, that we hope you guys enjoy with Hara and Christian from the Foundation for Indigenous Sustainable Health or Fish. Um, Courtney, do you, do you want to let people know how you came across these guys?
1: Yeah. So um, I met Christian a while ago um, when we were both practicing and training for uh, the 2021 UWA main conference. Um, so, I'm not sure how he was selected for that that process, but I think he was invited to talk and I heard the the concept and um the the content of his project really early on in twenty twenty one and it was fascinating uh, and I'm not going to give anything away for the introduction. you guys can all hear it yourself uh when you listen to our our, our conversation but it's very inspiring and There would be so many challenges, particularly as two people who are not indigenous, um, to go into an indigenous community and have success that they did, while facilitating the indigenous community to have pride and culture and spirituality in this project and really own it for themselves. They they they're so they're such nice people. They're so humble. They really really wonderful so it's a great conversation um we really hope you enjoy it uh uh yeah
0: yeah that's will let we we'll let you guys listen and we'll be back with uh a little bit more at the end
1: Everyone, uh, we would like to welcome Christian and Hara to our podcast today. Uh, we have a super interesting conversation, I think. Um, Christian and Hara, would you like to introduce yourselves to our audience and to me and Craig?
2: Sure thing. My name's Christian Rod. I uh, I work for Foundation for Indigenous Sustainable Health, which is also called Fish. And we're a not-for-profit organisation um, whose mission is to break uh, cycles, gener- intergenerational cycles of trauma, poverty, and engagement with the justice system for Aboriginal people. Um, we work across a whole range of areas, including education, housing, justice, um, health. We use the word health in the in the broad sense to mean uh, healthy spirit, heart, mind, body, healthy families, healthy community, healthy land. All of those things are necessary um, for, the, for the health of a person and a community.
3: And I'm Jara Romero. I come from Spain and I work also for the same organisation, Fish. I've been working with Fish for five years now and I'm um, an architect so I work specifically in the side of um, construction and co-design with Aboriginal um, you know, communities or Aboriginal our, our, you know, families.
1: Awesome. And how did you guys get involved with FISH?
2: Um, a long and winding path. Good. <laughs> I, my- I like
1: long and winding <laughs> paths.
2: <laughs> my, my role in FISH at the moment is as a project manager, but um, my career uh, originally started out um, in corporate law. I uh, worked for an international corporate uh, law firm uh, over in Melbourne. Um, I also had a, a, a lot of years of involvement with China um, and uh, I lived in China for for a number of years and was very interested in all that side of, uh, of, of the world and and learning about the culture and the society and I, I guess different different cultures have always interested me a lot. Um, and after a few years in the corporate world, I was really itching to do something a little bit more in line with my values. And in particular, seeing how there's such an urgency at the moment um, across across the whole planet to do things more sustainably and and to really very radically structurally change our, our practices or else we're sort of heading for a precipice of of um econo- uh, of of ecological collapse and uh, and and growing social inequity and all the other problems that we're facing as a as a species and wanted to wanted to do something more um more in line with with where my heart sort of sat um didn't know what that was going to be, so I I just dropped everything and left the country and started traipsing around South America in in hope of finding um, finding a bit of direction there. And I uh, I I stayed at a few places where the community members uh, we stayed at a few small communities in in Peru and and then later on in Colombia and other parts of the continent where. I saw that community members that had virtually no money and and, and um, uh, no no advantages other than a strong sense of community and, and a desire to take sort of their own future into their hands were building these amazing um, these amazing and beautiful places, and they were just using the earth and the other natural materials that were, that were there, and I was super inspired by that and very excited to learn how they were doing it. And, um, yeah, I sort of threw myself full throttle into into learning those techniques, not just the building techniques, but also the principles around healthy communities and that kind of thing. So that's where Hara and I met. Uh, maybe now's a good time for Hara to <laughs> transition into the story. <laughs>
3: yeah, so... Um I studied architecture in Spain um, and then went on to uh, Berlin, to Germany to work for several years. And my interest always laid in the sustainability part of architecture because construction is one of the industries that produce more pollution, contributes more to pollution in the world. So I was always interested in what can I do from my position as an architect to, try to move into a better world in 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 the little um, yeah in, in the little part that I, I I can contribute what can I do about it so I was always trying to learn about sustainable materials sustainable design low energy consumption consumption and I went and, and, and working in Germany for some years learn about that and then I was Um, Yeah, I was missing a bit the connection of the work with my hands. I was a bit tired of working in in the office. I was learning a lot, but I was like, I I need to do something else that just sit on a computer every day. So um, uh, at some point, uh, a friend of mine who was working in in Peru in South America told me that she was involved in the construction of a meditation center um, near Lima in the desert, and it was going to be built all with natural materials using... um, earth and timber and involved volunteers and in the community. So I decided to go there um, and to learn about different techniques and um, also kind of started a path of traveling in different countries and different climates and communities, learning from the traditional architecture and how... Um, how other cultures have learned through the years uh, to adapt to the place where they live and to the climate where they live using what they have, the resources that they have around. Um, and what can, how can we get all that knowledge that is already there and has been proven for so many years and we can incorporate the, uh, the current technology that we have to make it easier but don't lose all that learning that has happened before us. So I was yeah I was in that um in that path of learning through the traveling where I met Christian and we both had kind of found that we had the same interest um and from then on we we decided to continue traveling together and we work as volunteers in many community projects in different countries in South America and then in Europe to learn um yeah about um yeah, all, all, all that knowledge in different parts of the world and different climates. Um, and then at some point, Christian got a little bit homesick and wanted to come to Australia. Um, and then we started to think, how can we apply all that we have learned uh, in Australia? What can we bring with us? And we thought that um, remote communities will really benefit from from this kind of project because first, you will use... Resources that you have around you, so that will cost a lot, uh, cut a lot the cost of transporting all these materials uh, into remote communities. Second, you will involve the people in in the design and also the construction, so it will solve problems of um, uh, community involvement, empowerment, um, let the people decide what they want. Um, design something that is adapted to the way they live, that is completely different to how you live in the city. Um, And then also make that a design that is adapted to the climate so we can reduce the the use of energy, because in remote Australia, they are generating electricity through burning diesel um, and using air 24 hours a day. So it's it's not long-term sustainable to, to, to keep the model that way. So we, we thought um, that the kind of projects and the kind of knowledge that we had acquired in other countries could be really well suited for that kind of project here in Australia.
1: So uh, you, you've obviously done like a lot of travel and um, it kind of experiencing other traditional ways that people have, have built houses and created communities. I know that the the biased answer will be your favourite is Indigenous Australian communities and traditional homes, um, but out of the ones that you kind of have seen across the world, what would be your other favourite place? Uh,
2: so I'll start. I, I should start by saying I wasn't instantly sold on the whole idea. At first, like most people, I had never even thought of it. Um, and I was in a very remote Part of Northern Argentina, and I was kind of a grotty hippie, just like bum kind of traveler and Another grungy hippie traveler came up to me and, and took me to this old building and i couldn't, uh, I couldn't really speak Spanish then, but he was super excitedly showing to me that the building was made out of earth. And I got the point, and thought at first I just thought, yeah, and who cares? Like, building made out of earth, we don't do that anymore. It's yesterday's thing. Um, but really, uh, when I, when I thought about it, you know, the building was about two hundred years old, and when we construct houses nowadays with all the technology and advances that we've had, we we it would never occur to anyone that a house is going to last for 200 years or 100 years or even 50 years these days. You know, you you expect to get a few decades out of a house. And, yeah, you know, we're really talking about techniques uh, that have developed over thousands of years that are actually still really applicable. So some of the cool houses that we have come across, um, one of my favourites was a house in Romania, in Transil- in the, the, the hills of Transylvania, which looks like a, a, a fairy tale storybook kind of setting. And there was one house that was kind of like a Hobbit home and it was all dug into the hillside um, and it had grass and plants all over the, all over the top of it. Um, and the front uh, so it was dug in and the walls were made of earth bags. And the front side was kind of mostly glass and that. So standing inside this house, you're kind of embraced within the mountain and looking out over this spectacular valley um, with the sunlight streaming in through the front. That was a good one. Um,
3: uh, Uh, Yeah, I think one of my favorites was this bamboo house in Colombia. That have been Colombia. They had like a lot of different kinds of bamboo, but some of them grow like meters long. Um, So it was a house all made by bamboo, and it had like a curved um, roof um, with yeah grass and plants growing on it. And it was integrated in a forest next to a little stream. So yeah, we've seen so many paradise-like homes that are made with just natural resources and we were really inspired also by the, the people behind those projects because it was it was normally not the case that it was a privileged family or a family with a lot of resources. It was just a family that could get help from a community or from a family.
2: And this um, that, that pat- particular project, they were, they were growing with this bamboo which um, the, over there is called wadwa, And I think it's a species. It's one of the fastest-growing species. Uh, In some uh, in some places, it can grow somewhere between half a meter and a meter a day. Um, And there was uh, for a while, the Colombian government and some university was getting super excited about this as a building material and trying to encourage more people to build with it. And of course, people people were resistant to that and and you know it's that it's that if it's not a brick house it's not a real house kind of mentality mm-hmm. who wants to build with something like bamboo that you know that's for that's for our ancestors um and then a a, fa- a very famous um colombian drug lord built a mansion out of bamboo um and made it look super cool and um you know there the, there's this there's this badass guy building his his house out of bamboo, and, and then suddenly it sort of started to catch on. It's <laughs> so funny I just how like need someone to make it cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, like. I would hate to call a drug lord a celebrity, but celebrities <laughs> do have big influence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, how did you like? There's all of these like really cool ideas, and you're inspired by a whole bunch of stuff. But actually, forming a research group and idea out of the inspiration can be really hard. So, how did you go about making this project a reality?
2: Um, we we were working. When we got back to Australia, we contacted a few um, Aboriginal organisations working in the remote parts of the country, uh, in the Kimberley, in Central Australia, Cape York, and we sort of proposed. We'd done a bit of research by then and and put down a set of principles that we thought was going to be effective. Um, we put these to them, but without without physically going there and and being present, you sort of can't really gain any traction. Um, But there was an old gentleman called Victor Hunter who is um, an indigenous, Indigenous to the Northwest Kimberley um, around Derby and that. He's a Nying- Nyinguna elder and he, through a family connection, I, I got in touch with him and he came to visit us in Victoria on a project that we were working on in Gippsland and we were building this really awesome roundhouse out of earth earthbags. Uh, he came and chatted to us and looked at the project and said, guys, this is exactly what we, the kind of stuff that we need in the Kimberley and he he, he was super excited about us Given it a go up there, um, so he said, "You got to come up and just work with some of our people and and get some of this happening here, and we'll get all our people involved and yada yada." So he, sh- he strongly encouraged us to come to the Kimberley. He he was the f- one of the founders of Fish Foundation for Indigenous Sustainable Health, but at that stage, Fish was still a fairly fairly young and and very you know, not well-resourced organisations. So he pretty much, um, he said, we can't really offer you all that much support at this stage, but we really think you should come up anyway um, and just try and make something happen. So we had a set of principles that we had seen effectively working elsewhere in the world and we knew what we wanted to do um, and that was kind of as good an invitation as we were going to get to come up to the Kimberley. So we just packed our van and jumped in it and a few weeks later we were in the Kimberley, <laughs> um, not, re- not really knowing what to do then.
3: Yeah, what, so when we arrived to Fitzroy Crossing and we met Victor Hunter there and he introduced us to local people um, and he said you should get in contact with this, family at Boroga community because they had a fire going through their house like three months before we arrived there. Um, and they were living at that moment in a tin shed in the community and they hadn't been able to get any help from anyone else to rebuild the house. So they didn't have any plan going forward. So, so we went and sit down with them and um, look at the community. It was a quite a small community, just one extended family, but they already had like a small orchard with uh, fruit trees. Um, and they had done um, several small projects themselves, which show us that they were a family with um, energy and with willing to do things by themselves. And um, we just sit them around the table with them drinking a tea and we kind of show them photos of the things that we had done before and we explained that we could we could help them design and build a house, but we were not there to do it for them. They needed to collaborate and be the labour force with us. Um,
2: it's, it's also worth um, just focusing a little bit uh, on the extreme poverty that, that they were living in when we first came up. And Hara said that they were living in a tin shed, um literally you know we're talking about a place on the edge of the desert where the temperatures can get up to 45 degrees and this was just literally a a tin shed um with with an entire family living in it um
3: with windows cut in without glass
2: so there's abject poverty there and I, i guess it's also important to consider the the broader context of those remote parts of the Kimberley, as well as much of the rest of remote Aboriginal Australia, where it's it sits against a backdrop of um uh, of of economic and social disadvantage, which is not just material disadvantage, but you've got you've got some of the highest suicide rates in the world and ex- extreme high rates of mental health uh, mental health and physical health problems um, you have high rates of youth disengagement um, which which then leads to um, uh, youth crime uh, you've got very high rates of unemployment and you've also got the history of colonization there which and, and all the generational scars that that takes with it so it was a fairly complex Environment that that we were coming into, and that the that the people there have have to deal with on a on a daily basis. Um, so on the one hand, we, we we didn't quite know what what we were sort of stepping into, um, but it's it's just obvious at a glance what how much of a need there is up out there to to try new models and to try innovative things that, that might actually work because this, the structures and systems that we have in place at the moment and that are being driven from the top levels of government are clearly not working. And, oh, great okay.
0: I was just going to to butt in here because I realised I haven't actually <laughs> said anything so far. <laughs> yeah, it's been like
1: twenty minutes, Craig, and you said yeah. nothing. <laughs>
0: yeah, which is unusual if you listen to previous episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you you guys have documented your experience. You know, an excellent journal article in the Sustainability Journal, which I, I read um, in depth, and I was fascinated by. Um, so you you've sort of just covered a little bit about what what was there when you arrived, what you found. Um, What was the process of finding out from the community what they wanted and needed, and and how did that inform the aims of what you were doing there?
3: Yeah, um, I think when, as as Christian was saying, when we arrived, we were a bit naive in the sense of knowing all the challenges and all the cultural insights, so we kind of learned on the process. and how it worked, it was just sitting down with the community and chatting with them. So we would spend three to four days uh, camping with our van then in community and just sitting with them and talking um, uh, talking about how they live, how they use the spaces, uh, how would they like their house to be, how many people we're going to use um you see it, all of these kind of things, but also spending time with them and actually seeing uh, their daily routine and how they live. And then we will go to Fitzroy Crossing, to the nearest town, 100 k's away, and spend some days working what we have um, learned from the community and Christian will kind of start putting together uh, project descriptions so we could start looking for funding. And then we will come back to the community, um, present like the the drawings that we had done with the discussions, discuss over it again, change it, um, and we worked first with two uh, D models. So I did like with cardboard, just uh, a small model with walls and furniture, and even a little piece with uh, how much space a person takes, so they could <laughs> move around and see how the space is gonna use. So it was just kind of playing around with shapes and organizations and. Um, to make them think how, how, how they use the, the space is because as anyone else that, is, that has never built a house and have never stopped and think about it, we normally just replicate the models that we have seen before. So it takes a bit of um, play and guidance to be open to new ideas. And then, yeah, when they propose something, I will put it into the computer, print it out and bring it the next day and we will check it again. When they were more or less happy with that, then we built a 3D model with damper, which is a material that they use all the time. So they were comfortable playing there. So we build it in 3D and then they could see better the spaces and we make some changes that they hadn't seen in the, in the drawings. So it was like a very slow um, process because you want people to have time to make decisions and to have also the, um, that ownership Feeling and that pride they are there taking their own decisions. And a lot of things, there were some things that I would not do for my house because that's not how I live or that's not what I think is the best decision. But it is important also to let people make their own choices as long as it's something safe and that makes sense. Obviously, I'm there to, to guide and to tell them the pros and the cons, but at the end of the day, um, we have to let people make their choices. So that, oh. was that was an important
2: part of it. But one um,
0: thing I was interested to read was that they had really different ideas about things like accessing a bathroom and the fact that an en suite bathroom was kind of repugnant to them compared to obviously how mm-hmm. a lot of Western houses are set up.
2: Yeah, that was one of the things that came out of the damper model actually um, because there's there's things that y- you can look at a two-dimensional drawing of something and and it doesn't necessarily... Translate in 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 how a space is going to look and feel, and, and that. And when we made the damper model, yeah, there were little things that Andrea then picked up on, and one of them was, oh, she said, oh, the, the toilet doors on the on the inside. We said, yeah, of course it is. It's that's how they always are. She said, over my dead body. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we said, what's the problem with that? She said, it's disgusting. You can't have the toilet door on the. On the uh, on the inside of the house, um, and um, they told us a story again about a, a an old Aboriginal fellow who had come down to the city and lived with you know in a typical white fella house or, or guardia house, and he came back and said to them, "Oh, those guardia are mad. They shit right next to where they <laughs> sleep."
1: Yeah, it is a bit gross when you kind of think about it. Like, I can I can understand having the door on the outside; it makes sense. <laughs> but like, I've never thought about it before.
2: <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of little things. Like, yeah, well, it's,
1: it's
3: also because they always have like a lot of family visiting, so they don't they don't necessarily want everybody visiting the the house to have to. Go through all the house to go to the toilet because um, that will be very messy. So they want the visitors to stay in the outdoor kitchen and use the toilet without having to go through the whole house. So they can keep their privacy and they can keep their order.
2: Yeah, there's, there were a lot of features of that house that they they specifically wanted a particular way because they knew that the house was going to be used by a lot of people, and it's just the way that the family structures work up there. Um, she, Andrea was really excited to show everybody that damper model whenever pe- before we built the house when people would come to visit. Um, I said to her one day, "Where's the model you didn't didn't take it out today and she said, "Ah, oh, no, a bird broke into the house and ate it
1: <laughs> <laughs> again also doesn't really happen that much with a uh, western <laughs> 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 oh, that's funny mm-hmm. um so the, the community itself, I'm I'm probably going to butcher saying this as well, but, but I had it before.
2: Yeah, it's a funny mouthful. It's but called, but it's grown, pronounced Baldiger. No.
1: Baldiger, all right. Yeah, it's Baldiga. so much easier when someone says it, like reading it on the screen is just... Mm. Um, so the, the Baldiger community is more of like an extended family, right? So it's mostly just from yeah. one family. Um, and I, I could... With what you guys said, there was a lot of excitement, particularly with um, the the three D model. Um, was there skepticism as well with your project? Uh,
3: yes, of course. So one one of the consequences of colonization and all these years, um, the, the politics and how things have worked, is that there is a general. Mistrust of white people, yeah, just enough. because of they have yeah what they have experienced, um, and they see also so many people traveling there and staying for a couple of months and promising all these things and then going away. Um, so yeah, it, it is very difficult to to get to a point where people trust you. And actually, we have some members of the family, the the older members, um, they didn't start. Talking to us until the second year, when they when they saw that we went away to visit our families and we actually came back, and then they started talking to us because, um, yeah, there's so many people coming and going that they don't put their energy into someone until they can really see that you are committed to what you're saying.
2: Yeah, we had to prove that we weren't what what they call plastic bags, <laughs> white things that blow in and then blow around for a while and then blow away again.
0: I wanted to pick up on a... I've just literally taken a quote out of your paper that (laughs) I think just sums up what you're saying really well, and that is, the welfare and service industry in the remote regions is pervasive and in some cases nearly severing the psychological link between action and consequence for many of its beneficiaries. So do you just want to talk a little bit about your experience there and what you mean by that?
2: Um, So... up until a couple of generations ago, living out in that part of the world was so challenging and you see it in the old the older generation that the 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 experience and knowledge and the skill set that those people have is is just remarkable um, because people knew how to do everything for themselves um, but in recent generations in particular. Uh, there 's been a a real shift in things and the, and pati- particularly the way that um, uh, government departments and the welfare system has really come in and generated this this situation where welfare dependency is is a, a really structural part of 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 how things work up there and People have, in in a lot of fields across their lives, been sort of had that power and and agency taken away from them. And what, for to give one example, everybody up there calls, um, the calls, Centrelink money, sit down money, Mm -hmm. because it essentially encourages you to just sit down and and not doing not do anything um and that it it it's you see it right across right across society up there that people have taken have had so many choices taken away from them and um there's there's a, a sort of a a real lack of cult of um Cultural autonomy and a sense of despondence and a sense of um, yeah, lacking in agency. And if a, a lot of people f- take it as they've told us that they take it as a as a given that they'll probably, um, particularly young men, they'll probably end up in prison at some stage in their in their early twenties, um, and just not a not a real sense of. Having the having the power to do much about your situation, and it was one of that was one of the very strong um, things that that's one of the main things we were trying to bring in with our project to say, you decide what you want and you make it happen. and that's very empowering in in the short term and in the long term
3: yeah and in the long term because the 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 kids um the the small children of the community they were seeing their their parents their uncles their brother working and doing something, and then they will see the house finished, and they know that by putting effort into something there is a result at the end and and they have seen that that you can do something if you put time and effort into it um and, and what we have seen until now is that children have grown up seeing their parents um, being dependent on Centrelink and having sit-down money. And then if you grow up seeing that, then you think that's how life is. They are not exposed to other options. Um, so we were trying also to bring a, a different model and to, yeah to bring different ideas.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And without wanting to overquote your paper, I just think it's such a well-written paper. There's another quote that I think sums it up really well, is that the project was not simply about building a house. It was a program of community development, horticulture, education, health and well-being. And I think that's what you guys are really getting at, is it's, it's about the process of building something and working as a community. And having sort of collective ownership, I guess, over it gives them that agency back and something to be proud of and something to work towards and, and maintain. Um, yeah, it was that sort of, you know, what you guys saw up there.
2: Yeah, that has what that's what we had seen in other parts of the world, and that's what we had felt as well in our just in our journey. Um, Rehabilitating ourselves from the corporate world into <laughs> into something else, um, we felt that that as a powerful force in our own lives, and we saw it uh, elsewhere where we where we worked and participated, and yeah, that's what that was. That was the central part of the Baldiger project. I mean, sure, it was it was about a house, and because the community needed a good quality house um, suited suited to the climate and suited to their cultural needs. But it was just as much about every single person who participated in that being built up as a person because the level of self-esteem that anyone will generate by doing something like building their own house is tremendous. I, I mean, just the the level of pride that even we felt and it's not even our house um but for them that every time every morning when they wake up you know they open their eyes and, and they're looking at the thing that they created and that and that they controlled and there are not many people uh, up there and and anywhere that can really say that um so the the pride and self esteem that you get from it is is a, a huge um, it, it strengthens you in every other part of your life.
3: And that that pride is a big thing because when when we were talking to older generations of Aboriginal people that used to work in the stations, and the working conditions were were, were horrible. Now they were paid in sugar and tobacco and all of that but they felt so proud that they were useful and they were capable and they were skilled and they, they did something. Um, and they have a lot of stories to tell and they love those times. While when you talk to the younger people who have grown up um, with welfare and without really having any goal or any project on their own or their the community, um, you can see a real like hopelessness and a lot of uh, depression that is linked to the high rate of suicide because they don't really have any adventures to talk about or they don't have a project that they are excited about or they don't have anything that they wake up in the morning and they say, this is what I'm going to do. Or this is what I did last week, and I'm going to tell my friends. So just giving them a project to work on and something they can feel proud of, and something that they go on the weekend to their own community and they can tell their family or their friends about. That's that's a big thing.
2: Yeah, and and also um, in this housing project, we tried to so we tried to incorporate a few different pillars into it. Um, as as I said. Aside from housing, so there's there's an education component, um, an employment component, and a, a justice component. So on the on the education aspect, for example, we wanted to use the project, use the framework of the project, to uh, to also deliver an educational program. Um, we worked with the local high school. For example, actually, they came to us because we were we a few of the uh, lads that were in our team were enrolled in the local high school, but the attendance rates aren't um, aren't very high. Um, The school came to us and said, "We've noticed that some of the kids that you've got on your project have." really picked up their school performance since getting involved with you guys and we want so we want to incorporate whatever it is you guys are doing into mm. into the curriculum uh, so we had an agreement with them to to basically deli- um, deliver some part of their education in our project and just make it relevant to what we were doing so and that you know that's easy there's heaps of ways that you can educate that you can put literacy and numeracy and everything else into building a house um you got measurements and angles and and this and that um you can you can talk about you can sneak pythagoras's theorem into uh, into the 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 building by um you know when you're putting down your form your your um, foundations and so all, all of that stuff was was a no-brainer and and we got good results in that field um employment is that's another one you know just by engaging these young people and by getting them involved in a daily routine um which involved um teamwork and 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 getting up each morning and working hard and and having something to show for it at the end of the day we were just getting these guys used to something which otherwise um, the environment didn't really provide so it's been great to see since we finished the project. Um, one of our team members is employed full-time in the local health organization in Fitzroy Crossing. Another one got a job on one of the cattle stations and now he's working as a pearl diver. Um, another one, uh, just a, he's just about to turn 16 and already he's championing at the bit to, to start work on the local cattle station, which his father and I think grandfather worked on. And, um, he's he's so excited to learn all the skills of of mustering and um and and cattle work and and station life and wants to ultimately become the station manager and that's the kind of motivation uh, and drive that you can't always take for granted up there because um life's just not not always like that so that that's been really great to see and then moving on to justice. Again, we were wanting to use uh, this project as a way to offer an alternative environment for some people that would otherwise just get ground through the 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 mincemeat of um, of the justice system. Um, so, for exa- uh, in the end, I think our project was was able to be an alternative to to pri- prison in- incarceration in prison for about three or four young people where um you know one guy th- going through the magistrates court system was looking at a prison sentence and the magistrate looked at our project and said well this is a much much more suitable environment for this this kid rather than chucking him behind bars which i don't want to do um he can he can come out and work with you guys and learn whatever you're doing and 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 that was the case for a few people that we worked with so yeah you know we were trying as much as possible to to incorporate it, as many things into our project. Um, and again, that comes down to health as a holistic thing.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Um, yeah. So it's so many areas of disadvantage in, in the Aboriginal communities, like with one project, which is incredible. Um, so it's, it seems like the aims are quite broad and, and varied and, you know i think you got from what i've read you guys really achieved a lot of what you set out to um what about the process of building the actual place and some of the challenges you guys faced you know environmental social cultural logistical etc do you want to talk us through that because i I think that's just as fascinating as some of the stuff you were just talking about there
3: yeah so we had a lot of challenges (laughs) um well, to start with, we just wanted to do this project, but we didn't start with it, with any funding for it. So when when we arrived there, Christian and I were working for, like, as volunteers for the first six months while trying to raise funding to start. So it's always different, difficult to find funding for something that hasn't been done before because you don't have an example to base it on. So... Um, That's where it was really useful to have the support of an organization like FISH um, to get some donations. But, um, yeah, it was always kind of uh, we got a bunch of uh, a, a, a round of funding and we will work for a while and then we will have to stop and come down to Perth and look for funding again. So that's why also the project took so long because as a pilot and as a prototype, we had a lot of challenges that way. Once we had started building and people could see how it looked and we started posting videos, it was easier to convince people that it was a worthwhile project. And then um, our experience is that government tends to jump right at the end of the project when they Mm -hmm. see that it's going to be a success and it's really going to happen. Then they did help us at the end of it to to get to the to the final line. And then um tied to funding is also the being remote and how everything costs so much when you have to transport it. If it's from Perth more than two thousand kilometers and if it's from Broom five hundred kilometers. So um the cost of uh yeah, materials and everything is uh, really high, and you have to plan really carefully because when you're building in the in the city and you need a bit more material or you need a different kind of a screw or you need a new tool, you just drive to the hardware store. But in our case, when you forgot something or you miscalculated, you have to drive 500, 500 k's. So. Yeah, <laughs> makes everything a bit more challenging. That does no, make it
1: more tricky. I'm, I'm just going to quickly interrupt with a yeah. story because I've just finished my laundry that I've uh, uh, renovated myself and in one day I visited Bunnings seven times. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I can imagine um, you don't want to do that in the Kimberley. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not
3: at all.
1: Um,
2: we, we, we did occasionally jokingly call the local rubbish dump Bunnings um, mm-hmm. because nice. um, there were so many useful materials that we could scrounge there in times of desperation. Um, <laughs> that uh, yeah, we did make a few trips to the tip to uh, <laughs> to get what we needed.
3: Yeah,
1: but that's just that adds to the sustainability and um, yeah,
2: recycling that was all part the of project. The,
1: so
2: yeah, there were a lot of elements of the house actually that we salvaged from the previous one that burned down as well because yeah, it's uh, part of doing things sustainably is making making use of the resources you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the cultural challenges? Because those were certainly n- n- not, um, not small.
3: Um, yeah, well, we had, like, before going there, we had read a lot of books and watched movies and trying to inform ourselves of... Um, um, yeah, original culture and how they live and all of that, but obviously until you get there, it's really difficult to have an accurate idea and understand all the complexities and all the different challenges. So yeah, as I said before, it was a a, a work in progress and um, and something that is really needed for a project like this to 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 work is to have flexibility and adaptability because there there is they aren't inspecting things happening on a daily basis, like um, a car accident or a funeral or um, flooding, or we even had a small tornado going through the community and just destroying part of it, and all the members of the community end up in hospitals. So it's just, it's just really difficult to... to 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 plan um, so we we tried to have also alternative projects like for example we were doing an orchard at the same time so but the times that we couldn't build we could engage people in, in planting trees or in preparing the the irrigation or just trying to be flexible and adapt to to every situation um, we also had a lot of problems with Communication and at some, sometimes understanding each other with the community because we, we, we come from different cultures, we have different goals, we have different perspectives, and it's not always easy. Um, time is a different concept for them, and uh, I, I, I would love to be able to, to adapt to that and to work without mm-hmm. a time, but we also work with a budget. Um, and a tile that comes from basically the funding, no, and so it, it, it is really challenging to make those two walls match.
2: Yeah, in it, there were many moments where, um, Claude, for example, would say, would say in real frustration to us, We Kimberley people don't keep diaries. <laughs> um, and equally, on the other side, you know, with some frustration, it's sort of like I I know that we also have a very limited time frame and a very very limited budget, so trying to walk that tightrope between t- taking life as it comes and going with the ebbs and flows of Kimberley life, and then with the you know the the realities of Whitefellas system and and limited time and money. Um, that was really challenging, and as Hara said, one of the keys there is to is to have a lot of um, agility built into your program so that you can quickly transition from one thing to another, um, where you know uh, where where your plans not where you, where your plan might not be possible this week or next week because things do change on, on a dime. Hi,
0: we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. I think one of the things that came through in in your your article as well is is you, you sort of outlined the the health inequities that, that um, exist in that part of the world. And obviously there are mental health issues and there's a lot of physical health issues. You know, there's a lot of people in that part of the world that have much shorter life expectancies, for example. How, how did health problems impact on your timeline and, and how did you deal with that? Um,
2: well, starting with physical health problems, um, you're... You're working in a physical environment which is already very very difficult because for a large portion of the year we're working in extreme heat um, for another portion of the year um, it, it can get really quite cold um, you're far from you're often pretty far from medical facilities and that so it was very frequent that members of our team would be out of action for periods of time because of um, health, health complaints that uh, d- almost don't exist d- down, in know, parts of Australia that are closer to the cities, um, and we take for granted as not being problems. Um, and likewise, mental health is a real. It's a really tricky subject up there. And there were, there are times when life. Does get pretty complicated and pretty overwhelming up there, and you can suddenly find that some members of your team or all of the members of your team are just not not able to do to do much for for that period of time. And um, our one of the key things in our project was the our our dependence on the community leader, which. Uh, which was basically Claude, um, and he, you know, his role was so integral to motivating the team and um, getting getting people showing up each day and and, and working. Um, and there were a lot of things going on in his life too. So when it becomes overwhelming for him, we uh, we had a lot of challenges because our kind of our leadership. Uh, that's that was the leadership that we uh, that we were depending on. So, you know, it was uh, it it was really a very cyclical thing where we would go through periods of of really good workflow, and then it would and then it would all kind of grind up a bit, and and everything would slow down, and then we would would need to put a bit more focus on that. Um, human and relationship side so that we could uh, carry on That that we, yeah. we sort of weren't trained as social workers um, and uh, we had to learn a lot of that kind of thing on the job
3: Yeah, I guess we were the facilitators in the part of construction but um, the leader of the project was Claude because it's his community and he's the one who has the power to um, motivate people and to bring them together um, that's something that we cannot do because we we don't belong there. So you always need that person. And being a small community, because there was only one leader, whenever he couldn't do that role from different kind of circumstances, then... Um, the workforce was not there, so it's just we, as Christian say, we had weeks where we had a really great team and everybody was working, and then we had weeks that it was just Christian and me, and then we will do other kind of um, work, uh, waiting for the team to come back.
2: Yeah. And uh, on that, on that note, and and also considering the history that these remote. Aboriginal communities have with um you know, the white fellow world. It it was really, really important to constantly remind ourselves how uh how critical um how critical it is to just spend a lot of time listening. We just uh almost can't overstate that, how how important it is to really, really take the time to listen because it's it was very easy to, it's it's otherwise very easy to accidentally create the impression of being an outsider who's just coming in and telling people what's good for them and nobody likes that.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> so was there a stage in the construction process where th- they could actually physically see things coming together when things may be... Um, started to click and, and they could see the finish line and, you know, maybe that gave them a bit of ex- an extra push and a bit of extra motivation to get it done?
3: Yeah, um, I think it was a bit of a cycle. There was times where, you know, in construction, when you finally see the, wor- the the walls and you see the shape of the house and you think it's so close and you get motivated, but at the same time there is so much left to do. So you get that motivation and then it comes down when you realise that it's so much left to do and then you have the next you have the roof and then suddenly there's so much motivation but then it goes down because you know so it was always cyclical and we had these great weeks where everyone was motivated and, and everyone is doing a, a great job and then um, yes, uh, it's also were really physical jobs, so people get tired and especially we were working with a lot of young people that had never worked before so there is always those ups and downs that you just have to work with
2: there was one moment when I was standing next to Andrea, and the walls of the house were already fully constructed. The roof was already on, so it, it already kind of looked like a house. <laughs> and she she said, "Ah, oh, maybe this thing going to actually happen."
1: Ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So when it kind of when it did actually happen, when it was finally built. Um, what was everyone's feelings? Was it a celebration? There was, yeah, I think there, there was a
3: lot of pride. We, we tend to celebrate whenever we had uh, like a big milestone, we will do something to celebrate. We did a dancing on top of the walls when it was finished. <laughs> <laughs> and we would do that kind of thing to keep the motivation up. Um, but I think for me, the best part was to see like when, when family members or people from other communities will come and visit. Um, which happens a lot, is just to see the family showing the house around and hear how they talk about it and how proud they feel about it and how they say, like, yeah, we designed this because of that and this is the material, these are the rocks that come from uh, my grandmother's country and this is where we're going to have the fire and that that proud that they talk with, that that's the best part, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really... Um, interesting design and, you know, obviously we've talked a little bit about some of the things that might be different to uh, houses in Perth, for example. And one thing that I thought was really clever was how the, the, I guess the house is is temperature controlled without air conditioning and that sort of thing. And just even down to having the narrow walls face east and west to, so there's less sunlight coming into the house and there's no windows on those walls. Um, Do you just want to maybe give listeners a bit of a sense of how you managed to achieve that so that temperatures wouldn't fluctuate too much inside the house?
3: Yeah. So we applied what is called the um, solar passive design. Um, so solar passive design is about using the um, uh, orientation of the house, the the materials, the ventilation, all, all, all the things that you can uh, tackle from the design without actually... Using energy to allow um, the house to be uh, sorry. I'll do it. <laughs> um, so what we're trying to do is like from the design, trying to keep the heat outside of the house, so mm-hmm. then you don't have to take it out. So one of the things is the orientation, and that follows the the principle of the um, German mats in the in the northern territory. The the um, Magnetic that termite mounds.
2: Termite mounds, yeah.
3: Yeah, so the idea is that the the sun comes up through the east, and then you have like a um, low height that will impact on the on the walls. Then it goes up through the north, and then comes down through the west. So when the sun is up, um, you can keep it out of the house with roof and with having eaves. And then the moments that the sun is going to be low and it's going to actually be impacting the walls is at sunrise and sunset. So that's east and west. So if you try to keep your walls thinner and have less openings, so no doors, no windows, in the east and west, you are keeping most of the radiation out of the house. And that is much more efficient not to get radiation into the house than trying to get the heat out once it's in. So... Another of the principles is um, to have a ventilated double roof. Um, so it's like having an umbrella. So the sun is hitting the, the outside roof, and then there is a current of ventilation because the prim- between the primary and the secondary roof. So that means that the heat is dissipated before it gets mm-hmm. into the house. Um, that's a principle that is uh, used a lot in the tropics that we, we, we saw in South America, for example. Um, And then having cross ventilation. So every room has two windows or or a window and a door in opposite walls. So it means that when you open them, you have current, you you are allowing the breeze to come through the room. Um, And we also put uh, ceiling fans to help with that ventilation. So that means that you don't need an air can, you're just using the natural breeze um, to dissipate the heat. And then depending in which climate you are, it would be good to have either insulation or thermal mass. We use thermal mass. So thermal mass is the capacity of a material to um, store and dissipate heat. So having like really thick uh, walls, it's like living inside a cave. So the (laughs) walls take a long time to heat, and then it take a long time to cool down. So the nights are cold. the The walls are cold in the in the morning when they started to start to get warm. It takes a long time for that heat to get to the inside of the wall, and by the time uh, the the inside part of the wall is warm, then it's already nighttime and it's cold outside. So what it's that is just flattens down the fluctuation of temperatures during day and night.
1: It's almost like a a weird kind of factory is the way that i'm thinking like it can store all of the energy and then overnight it releases all of the energy so yeah like when you have these big rocks in the country and Mm -hmm. when you sit at them
3: at the end of the day they are warm but when you go and sit at them in the morning they are cold because Mm -hmm. they have been cooling down through the night it's the same principle very cool um
2: so uh, one thing i'm not an architect so i can spruik away um (laughs) i uh one thing that Australia doesn't typically do is engage architects very 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 commonly in in you know d- you just typical residential houses and it really shows because right across Australia you often see a style of building which is not particularly sensible for the surroundings and could be so much improved by some basic input from Architects, including, for example, deciding that the only factor in the orientation of your house is where where's the where's the street front rather than where's the sun? You know silly things like that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I know that um, the house that I'm currently in has that issue. Uh, it's very poorly designed, but otherwise, um, we can definitely learn from that kind of information. Question now is the people that live in this house has the house stood the test of time? Do they still love it? And then, what's the plans for future? Are you going to build more houses? What? Yeah, what's the plan?
2: Yeah, it has it has stood the test of time. Um, I mean, it's only it's only been there for for two years, so it still has uh, still has a lot of time to go and prove itself but they they still love it they're still very proud of it it's still um it's solid as a rock um <laughs> and just th- thermally it's functioning well um your classic house up there requires so much ongoing energy input to keep it to keep it cool or to warm it up when it's too cold um and and ours just doesn't this design just doesn't need that um they've they love um, for example, they love that it has an outdoor kitchen and an indoor kitchen the indoor kitchen is just for you know A- Andrea's sort of private usage and the outdoor kitchen is where everybody comes and uses that space and they cook over the open fire and um, so they' they're, they're loving those features um, and uh, yeah I mean we, we we'll keep we're gonna keep working with Baldiga community so we'll be able to we'll we'll be able to keep checking in with them and seeing how how it's doing. But so far so good.
3: Um there's also like being a pilot and a prototype. There's obviously a lot of things that we've learned through the process that we could do better for next projects. Um and some of them are just from yeah, n- know, knowing the place and knowing the people and how can we adapt to make the project maybe a bit faster next time so it doesn't require s- such a long time or wh- what kind of things they feel more comfortable with. Um, so for, uh, for the next projects that we will do up there, we have decided to do ram earth instead of airbags, for example um we were not able to do that in the first project because we didn't have the funding to get formwork and the, the yeah, kind of the resources that were needed um but we have seen that that will be more efficient it is it is it is the same material is earth but it's a different technique that will make the project way faster if we can get the the, the resources needed for it so um yeah think, things like that that um you you just learn with practice and that's why we have pilots to try all those things and to, to get better.
0: I'm curious to know from start to finish how long it took you you know from arriving there and starting your conversations and finding out what, what the community were looking for all the way to the house being finished what was the time frame?
3: From the moment we arrived there until the moment we left that was three years um, which looks like a long time for a house but it. As we always say, it was not just a house. It was uh, first putting the project together, get the fun and do the design with them, but also all the integrated ads on that we did, like the orchid, like the um, uh, long-term community planning, um, um, yeah, the work with the justice, the work with the... um, High school. So some people that we talk with, they say when we said that we were three years in the in the Kimberley, they asked how many houses we built, <laughs> uh, and it's kind of difficult to to say well only one. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's just trying to understand the broader concept of of the project. It's not just about the house.
2: Yeah, yeah. In the that... it, particularly in the first year, it was uh, it was frustrating because everybody wanted to start. Everyone was champing at the bit and um, there were a lot of hurdles that we had to clear even before we could lay the first bit of bit of bagging. So we, we arrived in April 2017 and we didn't really start building the house until 12 months later. Um, we were speaking to a, a friend of ours. When we first got there and we'd only been there for a couple of months, um, we met a guy who had been working in that part of the world for years. And he said, oh, yeah, so what's uh, it's cool, it's a cool-sounding project? What's your time frame for it? And we said, well, we're hoping that we'll be pretty close to finishing by the end of the year. And he la- laughed at us and said, oh, my God, guys, if you've even started before the end <laughs> of the year, consider it a great victory because things move very slowly in the Kimberley um, and that... That prediction was was pretty much spot on.
3: <laughs> and one thing to add also is that even if we were very remote and it's a different technique and all that, but we because it was a pilot and we wanted to be able to use it as an example and to learn from it, we um, we did apply for all the permits. So it's a fully permit house with uh, all the paperwork and and everything. So that also took time.
2: And we had yeah, we had to demolish the the old wreckage of of the house that burned down before we could start anything as well, um, which took took a while because we had to get hold of the, the machinery and that to do it. And then there's the, the cycles of the seasons as well, that every time the wet season, and if you've ever seen a Kimberley wet season, you'll know what I mean. You, you can't really do anything during those months, so we would leave... We would leave the place for a few months and then come back when the rains had stopped, and um, that was even things things like that. It's dependent on whether or not you can get in because the first year that we arrived in the Kimberley, Fitzroy Crossing was just an island. Uh, you can see an aerial shot, and it's it's a, it's like a speck of a town surrounded by thousands of kilometres of water. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, was that during the wet season, or is that always like that? uh
2: I'd say every wet season it's likely to happen for at least a small amount of time some some years much bigger than others.
0: yeah, yeah interesting. <laughs> Just things that you don't know until you go there you you can't possibly appreciate until you go there.
2: There was a yeah. time when we went into the supermarket, and the only fresh vegetable they had was asparagus. <laughs> Oh, okay.
0: That would be quite interesting.
2: <laughs> every, yeah, the, every other sh- everything else on the shelf was cleared out.
3: Uh, yeah, because yeah, when it gets flooded and the, the the roads are cut, then there's no supplies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interest. It's just a fascinating project. We could talk about it forever.
1: <laughs> I still have so many more questions, but I, I have a feeling we should probably wrap it up soon because um, we, we've spent quite a long time talking. um Is there anything else that, uh, Christian, Ahara, you would like to say uh, for this conversation? Any last words?
2: Uh, One other thing about that particular house that uh, we haven't talked about so much but it's been very important to the community members is because the house has been made from their local earth and their local stones... For particularly for Claude and Andrea, who are very people still very connected with their traditional spirituality, that was hugely important to them. Um, You know, Claude and Andrea say, for example, because the house is earth, they feel like they're living in the womb of Mother Nature. And Claude talks a lot about how he feels really connected with his ancestors because. His ancestors are part of that country and part of the objects on on his country, part of the soil and part of the rocks. And that's that really means a lot to him. Um, and, you know, there are so many features of that house that are just specific to them, not even, you know, I couldn't generalize across all of the Kimberley, but specific to them. And that was the idea that they design it, they make it how they want it, and it is it uniquely reflects that family and that community and ev- i think every every project should have an element of that at least something to connect the people to 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 their their home and the, and their their achievement yeah.
0: yeah that's great that i think that might be a good note to finish on um we really appreciate your time uh today uh and I'll, I'll leave you with one more quote from your paper. <laughs> uh, it's a short one. Um, but, yeah, I think you, you guys mentioned to achieve lasting change, people need a hand up, not a hand out. And I think that really sums up what you guys have done up there and I'm assuming what you're planning to do, you know, on an ongoing basis there and, and elsewhere with other communities. And I, I think, yeah, hats off to you both. I think it's remarkable.
2: Thank you. Thank yeah, you. And that, I think that does well sum up the, the ethos of what, what we try to do with fish. It's it's about a hand up, not a hand out. Yeah.
3: And sometimes, it's most of the time, it's a bit more difficult and takes a bit more time, but the results are totally different.
0: Excellent. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time. And I I, you know, I understand correctly, there might be a little bit of research happening um, looking at the temperatures and stuff inside the house you've built at different times of the year. If, if I think you might have mentioned that in your paper so it might be interesting to get you guys back on in the future to see what you found
2: yeah that'd be great wonderful
1: thanks guys
0: excellent thank you very much thank you and that was our conversation with hara and christian from fish
1: i there's just so much to learn so much to learn i it's crazy uh one of the kind of big things that i I guess I wanted to ask, but it's quite personal, so I wasn't going to is how they could even find themselves living in the Kimberley for three years um and commit to that project like it's such a huge project, and the two of them just did it with so much style,
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a real tes- testament to their perseverance and commitment Absolutely. because th- being there for three years and essentially adapting to the local, I guess, the local time in a way, um, mm. you know, where concepts of time are different across cultures. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously they're, they're having to deal with the wet season, the hot season, the cold seasons, et cetera, um, you know, where it fluctuates quite a lot in that part of the world. Um, yeah, hats off to them. That's I was yeah, and I think away. we
1: also need to kind of say, uh, hats off to the community as well, yes. the good community, because the fact that they even trusted two people to come into their community and make these changes um, and help facilitate those changes, uh, yeah, the, the pers- perseverance and trust and bravery of that community is huge. Yeah. Um,
0: And I think it it could serve as a great example to possibly other communities that may have reservations about, um, you know, non-Indigenous people coming in and, you know, telling them what to do or suggesting, you know, how (laughs) things should be done. Because we shouldn't
1: be doing that. Yeah. (laughs) That Um, is, no, yeah. And so,
0: (laughs) you know, maybe this project, they can point to that and say, look, this is not us coming in to tell anyone what to do. This is us coming in and asking you what you guys need. And let's talk about how we might be able to help you achieve that you know, together Mm -hmm. with you guys actually, you know, running the show and turning up every day and, um, you know, putting things in place and doing the building and, you know, you can tell people when it's finished that this was how you built this part of the house and this is – it was your idea to have this veranda where it is and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm.
1: Um, Yeah, and and I think that's the main point is it was the Bouldigo community's idea concept and achievement. Um, And Christian and Hara were the facilitators. And, yeah, the the communication and collaboration between the two groups really should be commended.
0: Yeah, and I I think the fact that the community can see the impacts, not just in the fact that they've now got this lovely house, um, which is probably changing their lives and their their quality of life immensely, but they can also see their young people out there Getting opportunities, you know, outside of the community, um, using some of the skills that they might have learned during the building of the house and, you know, some of the education that Christian was talking about, you know, just basic mathematics and, you know, literacy and stuff like that, 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 you know, you can learn on the job, essentially. Um, It just, this project just ticks so many boxes. um, and. You know, we, we talk about closing the gap and across things like life expectancy and health and um, education and justice outcomes and that sort of thing. If if you run down the list of things that are included in that closing the gap policy, you might be able to tick all of them off from this, just this project. And to me, that's remarkable. And I know this one took a long time, in, in you know, compared to what a house might normally take. But like, like Hara and, and um, Christian said, uh, you know, they, they'll use that to learn for the next time. And, you know, I imagine this process might not take quite as long next time, you know?
1: Mm, Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I think uh, particularly from a health and research perspective, even in a broad health area, like the area I'm in with cardiovascular disease, we're always pushing for multidisciplinary integrated care. Um, And that's just combining the outcomes and evidence base for two diseases, let alone health, education, justice, community, spirituality. Um, and it's hard enough to get two diseases to be considered together. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting project that has just worked so well, combining all these pillars together. Um, and there's not many projects that exist like that.
0: Yep. It's, um, yeah. Look, we, we will include links to the TED talk that you're talking about that you mentioned.
1: TEDxUWA. TEDxUWA. Gotta say that rather than TED, TED talks. Not TED
0: talks. TEDxUWA. TEDxUWA, TEDxUWA. <laughs> um, and, also, <laughs> yeah. and also the longer um, journal article that they wrote. If for people who who fancy a good read, um, I, I read. And it. I
1: will say. That journal article doesn't read like a like a traditional journal article. It's no. actually a lot more engaging.
0: Yeah, um, it's it's written yeah. in the first person and it's a, it's a narrative account of what they you know experienced from start to finish. And there's, there's diagrams and photographs showing you how the house was designed and how it looks, um, what the finished product looks like, and, and some of the technology that we spoke about in the design about the the thermal. Uh, I forget the term anyway. Using earth to uh, in the walls to to stop the heat going in and and out too mm-hmm. quickly, um, you know, and the and the way they had the the, the double ceiling with the ventilation, you know, the, all all that's in this this article that we'll link to, um, and yeah, it's just show, goes to show that with a bit of ingenuity, you can keep things pretty simple and get a great result. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, so, if you want to talk to us more about this project and want to read the article, it's there. We will tweet this out with the article. Uh, but you can talk to us about this project mm. if you tweet us at health what. Yep. Um, that is right. Yeah. That's correct. I, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I had a massive like, I was like, wait, is that our email address? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. man, you'd think by now they would have gotten it. Um, anyway, so you can tweet us. Um, you can also email us, at outlook.com. Uh We would love to have these conversations with our listeners.
0: Yeah, excellent. And, yeah, any feedback you've got or, um, yeah, any ideas you want to contribute, much appreciated. Yeah, all right. Well, thanks very much once again, Courtney.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with you with another episode soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.